Everyone has a favorite holiday tradition, and Town & Country Honda has one of their own. Happy Honda Days. It's the time of the year that American Honda Finance offers the very best financing and lease rates of the year. You can lease a 2013 Civic Sedan for just $149 a month, 12,000 annual miles, three-year lease, with just $19.99 due at signing. Imagine financing as low as 0.9% APR, up to 60 months on select Accords, Civics, CRVs, cross tours, pilots, ridge lines, and odysseys. The deal of a lifetime comes only once a year. And Happy Honda Days extends to pre-owned Accords with special 1.9% APR financing. There's also a nice selection of pre-owned Mazdas, VWs, Subarus, Nissans, and more. You've been good all year, so reward yourself with a new Honda. This once-a-year sales event is going on now at Town & Country Honda. Exit 7 off I-89 next to Applebee's. Town & Country Honda. Powered by trust. Driven by value. See dealer for complete financing and lease details. It's time to get the story behind the story. Interviews with newsmakers, newsbreakers, and your phone calls. Radio Vermont presents The Mark Johnson Show. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for tuning in. Hope you had a fabulous weekend. Thanks for spending part of your morning with us. All cell phones are off, right? So, oh no, actually, yours need to be on so you can call us here on the program. Coming up today, we have a uh, full lineup for you. At 10.30 this morning, I invited back Dr. David Reese. You may recall he was the psychologist who joined us a couple of weeks back, did some time where he spent with trauma uh, training down in Newtown, Connecticut. I thought it might be valuable to get him back on the program here and not just let this story disappear, as I predicted that, unfortunately, it seems to be doing, and get some thoughts from him about what communities do at this point when basically people start to uh, their the memory of that community starts to fade away so he'll be joining us coming up at about 10:30 this morning our white house crew victoria jones joins us coming up in just about an hour we'll find out what the latest is in washington the uh, president nominated john Kerry to be the new secretary of state and chuck hagel a name from the past another former United States Senator as the head of defense. That one is going to be controversial. Also coming up on the uh, program this morning, later this hour, I'll share with you some of the uh, comments and uh, dedications and eulogies that were given yesterday for former State Senator Edgar May, who lived down in Springfield, a great man, and uh, his sister is somebody that you might have heard of, uh, Madeline Cunin, who gave a really quite a moving talk about her older brother so i'll share with uh, that with you later this hour we'd love to hear from you on the program you can always reach us at 244-1777 that's our local number toll free you can also reach us at 1-877-291-8255 a couple of other really important stories that i hope to get to this morning bill mckibben an interesting piece out talking about the emergency that we are facing in dealing with the climate he talks a little bit about some of the problems of public policy changes when it runs up against things like physics. And the Burlington Free Press this morning reporting this national story about the inability of New England fishermen to find fish. And I, you know, this is all tied in with the McKibben thing, too, or at least I would argue. You can reach us at 244-1777. That's our local number in central Vermont. And our toll-free line is 1-877-291-8255. As we all know, and I certainly put a premium on, words matter and the right words matter. We're going to be uh, joined this morning. Let's give a nice warm radio from a welcome this morning to Natalie Kelly, 
who is one of the co-authors of Found in Translation. And I think Natalie would agree with me that uh, the right choice of words can really make quite a difference. Natalie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm uh, doing well from New Hampshire here. <laughs> Whereabouts are you in New Hampshire? I live in Nashua. Okay. What's the weather like down there? Oh, it's pretty cold. We've got snow on the ground. I don't know the exact temperature, but it's it's winter, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a you know that's a nice change from last winter when we got barely any snow and and it wasn't really even that cold. I agree completely. It feels like winter this year. <laughs> Tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, your background. Well, I uh, was born in Illinois, and um, I was interested in languages from pretty young age. Uh, I had a piano teacher named Helen Kim, who was from Korea. And she taught me to sing in several different languages when I was young. And I went to college and majored in Spanish and lived in Ecuador for a while and uh, became fluent in Spanish and became an interpreter. And worked. Uh, my first job out of college was working as an interpreter for AT&T, uh, providing interpreting services over the phone. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Starting with a, with a kind of a difficult job there, huh? <laughs> yes, well, telephone interpreters interpret for all different kinds of settings. So hospitals, um, 911 emergency calls, uh, court settings, business dealings. You know, even if a tourist walks into a shop and wants to buy something, some stores have access to this interpreting phone line where they can call in and get an interpreter for 180 languages. So it's actually quite a, a widespread service used throughout the United States. Wow, I've never heard of that before. So what was it about interpreting that interested you? Well, bridging communication gaps, you know, enabling people to communicate. Um, one of my earliest memories as a child is of not being able to say something that I wanted to say. or I was trying to say it and my mom couldn't understand me. And I'll never forget that that incident. I, I know exactly where I was when it happened, and I think that stuck with me and given me the desire to help overcome language barriers. What were you trying to say that your mother couldn't understand? <laughs> I was trying to say we were here before, and we were, I was sitting in the shopping cart in this grocery store, and she was talking with my aunt, and I was trying to say we've been here before. Like, I remembered that we had been in that store, you know, like the previous week, but I didn't have the word for that. So whatever I ended up saying was, you know, the ramblings of a child, <laughs> toddler. And, um, you know, they, they couldn't uh, understand me, so they just kind of looked at me and laughed and continued their conversation. I felt very left out, and um, that's, you know, stuck with me all my life. Wow, isn't that interesting that that incident, what effect that had on, on many choices you made in the future? Yes, well, you know, I, I always think back on that whenever I allow someone to communicate. It makes me, it feels good to be able to help people communicate across language barriers, especially when you feel like you're not even there and the two people are communicating as if they don't have an interpreter between them. Mm -hmm. My mom made me watch the Watergate hearings, which may be why I'm doing what I'm doing today. So the impact of mom, once again, coming through here. Exactly. <laughs> now, what, uh, So what's the hardest part of translating? Well, you know, we in the book uh, cover both written translation and spoken language interpreting. And what I think a lot, a lot of people don't realize is that this is a very broad field. So, you know, you have interpreters working um, in the United Nations, which is how most people think of interpreters working. And then you have interpreters who are interpreting 911 calls. 
you right. know, and I was wondering for the Newtown shooting, um, you know, who made the first 911 call and, and, you know, sometimes, you know, a Spanish speaker or some, well, someone who speaks another language might have been a witness to a crime or, or seen something that matters. And interpreters absolutely have to be used to help report crimes and report um, witness evidence and, and testimony and things like that. Um, a lot of people don't realize that interpreters are there behind the scenes making those things happen. Also in medical settings, uh, court settings, you know, there are interpreters working all over the place. And in different parts of the country, we have different pockets of, you know, refugee communities that have been resettled in different towns. and. That, that creates a huge need for interpreters when individuals first arrive so that they can communicate uh, even about things like going to the grocery store and knowing how to how to buy food you know? right. it's um it, it's a very large industry a common sense advisory where I work um, as a researcher estimates that the industry is worth 33 billion US dollars in huh. 2000 yeah huh. yeah right, but, but go back to my question about the difficult parts of the job. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it depends on which setting you're working in. Um, speaking from my own experience, uh, one of the stories that we cover in the book that's probably the most difficult call that I ever had as a telephone interpreter was when there was a call that came in and I heard a woman who was whispering on the phone and she was hiding under the bed and there was a man in her house and she said, he's going to kill me. And so I was helping the dispatcher uh, ask questions like, where is he? Where is she? You know, does he have a gun? Things like that. And so at, toward the end of the call, um, the dispatcher was trying to send help. Um, she said, he's at the door. And then she said, uh, you know, when she said he's at the door, we heard a click and she disconnected. Wow. And then I was disconnected. Um, and I never found out what happened. <laughs> and that's typical for emergency calls. The interpreter never knows what, what happened. But, you know, in those kinds of situations, it's very difficult because your adrenaline is high. You know that you might be saving someone's life. And, you know, one, one misinterpreted word can really make a huge difference. Yeah. So how so. come you never found out what happened in that? Well, these services for telephone interpreting cover the entire nation. So, you know, half the time the interpreter doesn't even know where this is taking place and what right. community. Um, in this case, I did know at the time uh, what state it was in. So in the days that followed, I was kind of searching on the Internet to see if I could find anything about, you know, any murder of a woman in her house. But, of course, there are so many of those that yeah, I had no idea. I, I, I never found out what happened. Um, we're not allowed as interpreters to call the police station back and try to get more information because we're supposed to be detached and neutral and really not involved in those kinds of things. But obviously, as human beings, we care and we want to know what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're talking with Natalie Kelly. She's one of the co-authors of Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. You can join us at 244-1777, toll-free 1-877-291-8255. I need you to explain to me a little bit more about how this worked with the dispatching. So you're sitting somewhere in a call center waiting for to be patched in on a call somewhere nationwide? Actually, a lot of telephone interpreters work from home. So 
they're remote workers. Some do work in call centers, but most um, work at home. And in that case, I was working from home, and so I get a call, and the dispatch of the agent tells me, I have, you know, Texas police or something. Um, sometimes it's even an automated voice that tells you where the call's coming from. But sometimes you can't, you know, if it's Texas, it could be any city or county in Texas. Depends on how the contract is structured. So then they they patch the dispatcher in. The dispatcher will usually say something like, find out what's wrong. <laughs> and the interpreter has to ask whatever question the dispatcher directs them to ask. Okay. Wow. Wow. I mean, you have no idea where you're, when you pick up that phone, where you're heading into. Right. Most 911 calls are not true emergencies. You know, sometimes it's a child playing with the phone. Sometimes it's a missile. So most of them are actually not emergencies, but that particular call was. Mm -hmm. You know, I always watch these UN interpreters when you talk about them as kind of being what we usually think of. And I, you know, I'm sure other people have thought this too. I'm thinking to myself, this translator is really holding all the power. You know, if, if they if they decide that they want to say to the head of, uh, you know, China, we're we're going to launch our warships against you. It's not as though anybody in the English speaking audience is going to have a clue. So, <laughs> how does how, how how what are the rules? Exactly. Well, interpreters have a code of ethics. So in the case of the UN, I actually went to the United Nations in New York and interviewed the chief interpreter there and, um, you know, learned a lot of interesting things about United Nations work. But definitely, they do hold a lot of power. Um, thankfully, they're trained to observe ethical principles so that they don't change the meaning of what was said. Um, you might be interested to know also in the book we, we cover an interpreter named Harry Opes who interpreted for seven U.S. presidents. And talk about having power. Yeah. <laughs> um, we tell a story in the book about when he was interpreting for President Johnson. And uh, he, Johnson was in a discussion with the German chancellor. And his interpreter actually, at, at one point, Johnson was alone with his interpreter because the German chancellor went to the bathroom and he was asking some difficult questions about missile defense and Johnson didn't really know how to answer and so he turned to his interpreter and said Mr. Interpreter how should we answer that? Wow. <laughs> so the interpreter advised him because he had been briefed extensively on all the facts and figures and so he gave him the necessary information and so when the German Chancellor returned Johnson impressed him with a really well-informed answer and he wasn't known for having that military expertise. So interpreters really do play important roles behind the scenes in political settings. Well, that's interesting because imagine trying to convey the passion and power of Lyndon Johnson, you know, compared to, I don't know, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, for example. <laughs> yes. I mean, there are lots of stories. Um, you know, it, it, Carter had uh, an interpreter once where he was interpreting a joke and uh, the interpreter uh -oh. rendered the joke and uh, <laughs> he got this great response the audience just erupted in laughter and he asked the interpreter afterward how on earth did you do that how how did you interpret that joke because he knew that jokes were hard hard to interpret yep and the interpreter told him that the interpreter had directed the audience to laugh, and it said, the president has told a joke, you must laugh now. <laughs> oh, boy, nice. <laughs> and that's a true story. It's in Carter's uh, biography, and we mentioned that and several other stories like that in the book of funny incidents with interpreters and translators. 
I was waiting for you to have him say that he had the wrong word for election or something like that. <laughs> well, there was another incident with Carter that we also mentioned in the book. It's not as positive, but uh, he went to Poland, and his uh, interpreter was not actually an interpreter for Polish, but the State Department just got this interpreter. He spoke some Polish. He was an interpreter for Russian. And the interpreter made some mistakes, and it went down as one of Time Magazine's top ten most embarrassing moments because he interpreted um, something that made the president sound like... Uh, <laughs> um, he said you're, he wanted to say, my desires for the Polish people's future, and it came out as my lust for the Polish people. Oh, so it got, it got President Carter in a bit of trouble. It was all over the media, and um, it, it changed the way that interpreting happened from that point forward. Well, fortunately, in the case of Jimmy Carter, the lust was only lust in his heart, so I probably didn't go much further <laughs> than that. Well, you can imagine for a president known for his religious convictions how that... Uh, yeah. That particular phrase was <laughs> interpreted by the media. <laughs> what, was the, what was the fallout of that incident? Well, what happened afterward, you know, he did, the Polish press had a field day with it, and they, uh, the U.S. media got wind of it as well. Um, President Carter took it in stride, and he didn't blame the interpreter. Uh, the interpreter went on to have a distinguished career in, in, as a Russian interpreter, not as a Polish interpreter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what happened after that was President Carter became very aware of how much power the interpreters had. And so he started actually giving them access to his speechwriters. Um, in advance so that they could help come up with clever phrases in the other language and make him sound really good in those other languages. So it turned out uh, to be a positive thing. What's the incident, what's the uh, episode in your book where somebody becomes a quadriplegic because of a mistranslation? Oh, yes. This is what we call a $71 million word. Um, so there was a situation in 1980 um, a young man by the name of Willie Ramirez. Uh, he went. He was admitted into a Florida hospital, and the staff had lots of people who spoke Spanish. This is Florida, so it wasn't ch a challenge to find someone who spoke Spanish. But finding a professional interpreter is a, is a very different thing from finding someone who just speaks Spanish. So the family members told the doctors that they thought that this young man was intoxicado. Now that word is. A false friend. It doesn't mean intoxicated, even though it looks like intoxicated. So the bilingual nurse said that Willie, this young man, was intoxicado, intoxicated, but it actually means something more along the lines of poisoning. So if you say intoxicación solar, it means sun poisoning. Intoxicación por alimentos, food poisoning. In this case, they suspected that he had food poisoning. So he was given the wrong course of treatment, and he became quadriplegic as a result of that. And a malpractice settlement followed for $71 million. Wow. That seems like an enormous award for something that was an honest mistake. Well, you know, it was an honest mistake, of course, but this was a mistake that was entirely preventable. If they had simply used a professional interpreter, which would have cost them maybe you know, $20 an hour, <laughs> it would have prevented a $71 million lawsuit. Do you find that in situations where you're translating that people really try to dumb down their language a bit? 
You know, sometimes they do, especially if they're not experienced. And the biggest thing that they do is they speak louder. Yeah. <laughs> as if that's going to help. Yeah. Or they speak, like, uh, to a child. And you know, this is something that actually I've had when I'm interpreting for Spanish speakers, they'll say, why is he yelling? You know, <laughs> why is the doctor yelling? Is he upset? <laughs> it's very easy for them to get confused when, when that happens. And you say, no, he's just a stupid American that thinks that if you speak loud, <laughs> it'll get no, through. No, I interpret that. Oh, okay. I interpret it to the doctor, and then the doctor has to answer. <laughs> uh -huh. That way the doctor is aware of what's being said. Because <laughs> it's not you. You're just asking the questions. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Yes. But, you know, in, in the book, in addition to talking about interpreting, we talk a lot about translation and everything from Bible translation to translation for United Airlines and ATMs and NASA and, you know, hotels and all kinds of different places where translation and interpreting are used. You know, we do touch on literary translation as well because a lot of people know that literary translation is one of the areas where translators work, but it's actually one of the smallest areas. Most translators work for business settings, financial, legal, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. Is it lucrative? It can be. Uh, it depends on the language combination, you know, how in demand it is, and it also depends on the translator's expertise. You know, some patent translators make six figures. Um, Many interpreters working in courts and conference interpreting make six figures. Uh, it depends on where you're working. You know, some of the less paid work is community and medical interpreting doesn't pay so well. And uh, literary translation, translating books and, and poems and things like that doesn't pay very well at all. It's a lot of people do it on a volunteer basis because it's so poorly paid. But yes, you can definitely make a good living. In fact, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that translation and interpreting is among one of the, fa uh, the fastest growing professions. Wow. U.S. News and World Report also just uh, listed it as one of the top 100 careers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it would seem the, pr the, the uh, problem, the challenge that you outlined earlier where you've got communities that are now very diverse you've got the need within the medical community within the legal community within a in the business community that i'm just i'm wondering where where the uh the line is here because i mean you're talking about what could be an extraordinary expense to all of those areas mm -hmm. so how do, where do we draw the line here oh yes and this is a great question a lot of people ask this you know is it Shouldn't we just make language learning the priority instead, for example? Um, the reality is that language services like translation and interpreting are very cost effective. They cost just a fraction of, uh, you know, a total budget that a company would spend. Um, you know, people often ask this about the European Parliament, you know, because they have so many different languages. Right that they have to deal with. They even provide interpreters for Irish, Irish Gaelic, even though pretty much everyone in Ireland speaks English, they offer this because they're, they're, it's basically a representation of the importance of that language. So they have a staff of 344 interpreters, full-time interpreters for the European Parliament. And it costs the average EU citizen about the price of one cup of coffee per year. Okay. So this, the price is very small compared to the, the value because in a situation like that, people couldn't even 
you know, citizens would not be able to understand what their elected leaders are saying, <laughs> you know, and what their representatives are saying. And in a case like um, the United States, you know, imagine what would happen if we said, okay, you're not going to be able to report a crime if you speak another language. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> you know, if, if, you, if your child gets kidnapped and the only witness is someone who speaks Spanish, you're out of luck because we're not going to provide an interpreter for you. Right. You know, I mean, it, it affects the everyday person. It, if, no matter what language you speak, it affects you. Your ability to have access to justice, your ability to have health care, you know, even public health. If there you know, are people who speak other languages who are, are coming down with symptoms and it could be an outbreak, mm-hmm. you know, we want to know what those symptoms are. We want to know, we want them to be able to get health care so we can contain uh, the spread of a virus. You know, so language services absolutely benefit every every person, regardless of what language they speak. Um, language learning is important, but it takes time for people to learn another language. You know, it, it can take up to 10 years to really become fluent in another language, even if you're studying it a lot. And, you know, many people don't have the time if they're working several jobs. Uh, to study, to study, and the the reality is that a lot of language learning classes, especially ESL, uh, have wait lists, and some of them are not affordable. Mm-hmm. So we do have challenges with language learning as well. Mm-hmm. So it, that sounds like it would be the argument against somebody that, and I'm not going to make the argument that that everybody should speak English. Well, then we would have to say that American Sign Language users would also suddenly have to miraculously be able to speak English. And also all of our native people, you know, people who speak Navajo and people who speak other Native American languages, you know, that were here long before English. So they have rights, obviously, that are important to protect. So, you know, I always think that everyone who comes here should learn English, obviously. It's the language of privilege and it's the language of power in the United States. But at the same time, we can't help but offer translation and interpreting for those individuals so that they can participate in our society and our economy. You know, a lot of people don't understand that if you have a sign translated in English or you have even a, you know, press one for Spanish, press two for Spanish, one for English, that enables those individuals to participate in the economy, you know, and and spend their money (laughs) and, uh, you know, keep the economy going. So, Language access is important for all of us. If uh, you had a dream translating job, what what would it be, Natalie? <laughs> I, you know, I haven't ever been asked that question before. Um, I love I love medical interpreting, and I love to help people in that sense. Um, but I also love literary translation, and um, right now I'm translating poetry, and that's something that. If I could just do that, maybe I would do that um, and only that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is pretty fun. You know, one other thing that I'm very curious about is there are interpreters who work for the International Space Station, and they interpret for the astronauts. And the they interpret between the astronauts and the engineers who speak Russian in many cases and other languages. And that it seems to be a fascinating job. That's mm-hmm. kind of a dream job, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We write about that in the book as well because it's just such a a unique uh, type of interpreting. 
No, I said close the hatch, not open the hatch. <laughs> what, what about these? Um, what, what about these things on the internet where you can type into Google and get something translated into Italian? Are, are they uh, are they going to put you out of business? Number one, and are they actually accurate? <laughs> well, the accuracy depends on the language combination. So. Um, I have friends who live in Sweden, for example, and they tell me that the Swedish into English and vice versa for Google Translate is excellent. And it's getting better all the time because that is a tool that's constantly improving. Um, but, of course, if you go into some languages like English into Arabic, it's very poor uh -huh. um, because basically these tools are using large amounts of pre-translated data, information that's already been translated, and they're looking at it to see how to translate whatever you type in. They're basically looking to see, has this been translated before, and if so, how, and then it, it displays the results. So that's, yes, it has potential. Um, as for will it ever put interpreters and translators out of business, um, in the book we have several stories about this. I interviewed Ray Kurzweil, the futurist, um, who's pretty well known in the tech world, and he doesn't even believe that translators and interpreters will be put out of business by this kind of automatic translation because he likens it to the music field. You know, when he invented his synthesizer, musicians were afraid that that would put them out of business, but in reality, it helped the field evolve, and now there are digital sound recording engineers and you know, digital technologies have actually created a lot of jobs. And so he thinks it will be the same for translation, that mm -hmm. it will help the field evolve. We're already seeing that. Most translators do use quite a bit of technology. Um, translators for written information already use databases of previously translated information that they can access so that they don't have to translate something again if they've already translated it once. Okay. Yeah. All right. That makes sense. Yeah. You, As you write, there's some really serious and uh, implications of this. After 9-11, it was discovered that we may really have had more information prior to that attack than we thought we did, but nobody had time to translate all this stuff. Absolutely. The words tomorrow is zero hour and the match is about to begin, those phrases were intercepted on September 10th, 2001. And they weren't translated until September 12th because they were in Arabic. And, you know, it's not to say that translating them would have been able, would have allowed us to prevent 9-11, but it, it's cer there's certainly a likelihood that it might have helped because obviously there's a process before something is considered a credible threat. But yes, we have a major backlog of translation for intelligence purposes, and we have seen that this puts us at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Who's this book actually for? This book is for you. <laughs> it's, for the, it's for everyone. You know, anyone who has an interest in, you know, current events or even sports or entertainment or history, religion, you know, we cover elements of pretty much every aspect of life. And we've written this in a way that is fun, I hope. <laughs> uh, you know, we try to include lots of funny mistranslations and anecdotes and trivia about language. It's definitely not an academic book. Most books about translation are academic in focus, and therefore not many people read them aside from academics in the translation field. <laughs> right. So we purposely wrote this with lots of current events and 
you know, even things like Hollywood movie subtitles and how they're translated, video games and how they're translated, um, product names and things like that, sports, because a lot of our athletes rely on interpreters, especially in baseball. We've got lots of Japanese players and players from Latin America. So, you know, we talk about these kinds of things, how translation affects our everyday life, the average mm -hmm. person's everyday life. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not calling you an average person, by the way. Thanks. No, that's all right. That's fine. I'll, I'll take average on any given Monday. <laughs> now, let me, let me guess here. Found in translation, how language shapes our lives and transforms the world has been translated into how many different languages worldwide? <laughs> None yet, uh, because it's published first in the U.S. market, and later, if local publishers in different countries are interested, they will buy the rights from Penguin and then they will commission the translation. But I hope it will be translated. I have lots of translator friends who want to translate it, so mm -hmm. we'll probably know in the next uh, six months or so uh, if it'll be published in other countries, too. Well, maybe they'll let you do the Spanish one and not the Polish one. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it very much. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You too. Natalie Kelly is one of the co-authors with uh, Jost Zeitsch, who speaks uh, German. Uh, and they're authors of Found in Translation, How Language Shapes Our Lives and Transforms the World. Words do matter. I'll share with you uh, after the break here the comments of Madeline Kunin that she gave yesterday at a memorial service for her older brother, Edgar May. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. The next time you open up your wallet, take a closer look. Ask yourself, does your money have values? At the Vermont Community Loan Fund, we believe that money can have value and values. At the Vermont Community Loan Fund, we value Vermont. We make loans that put Vermonters back to work, supporting local businesses, farms, and food. Our loans build homes and support organizations that provide essential services like childcare. When you invest with the Vermont Community Loan Fund, you're investing in Vermont. You decide how much to invest, how long to invest, and the interest rate you'll earn. For 25 years, we've helped Vermont families, businesses, foundations, faith-based groups, and other folks like you invest in Vermont for Vermont. That's money with value and values. The Vermont Community Loan Fund, putting your money to work for you and for Vermont. Learn more at investinvermont.org. That's investinvermont.org. Hi folks, it's me again, Ruben, from RV Technologies in East Montpelier. We've been creating and supporting thoughtfully designed, custom-crafted computer networks for our clients since 1997. Here are a few more reasons why folks like to do business with us. We believe in doing the right thing from both the technological and human perspective. We offer nonprofit organizations discounts and even free gear through our socially responsible computing initiative. We're an e-waste collection point, partnering with Good Point Recycling. We believe in participating and contributing to the communities in which we live. We volunteer and train local students through mentoring programs. RB Technologies is growing because we love what we do and genuinely care about our customers' success. Call us at 223-4448 or online at rbtechvt.com. RB Technologies, efficiency through technology. Attention all Vermont military families. Hi, I'm Dan Keene, owner of Lamoille Valley Fort in Hardwick, Vermont. Whether you're in the National Guard and Reserve or you're active military, all of us at Lamoille Valley Fort are grateful for the sacrifices you and your family make every day on our behalf. That's why in 2004 at Lamoille Valley Fort, 
we started to provide free scheduled maintenance to all military personnel as a small way of saying thanks. Here's how it works. No matter what brand car you drive or where you bought it, Lamoille Valley Ford will provide you with all of your oil changes and air and fuel filters, tire rotations and state inspections, brake inspections, tire changeovers, and more at no cost to you with absolutely no strings attached. So drive Route 14, 15, or 16 to Lamoille Valley Ford in Hardwick. Again, all of us at Lamoille Valley Ford will never forget your sacrifice and wish everyone in the armed forces a safe return home. For your service, you have our gratitude. At Lamoille Valley Ford, we know our military matters. 244-1777 is our local number. Toll free, you can reach us at 877-291-8255. I mentioned a couple of times my first job in Vermont was down in Springfield, Vermont, machine tool factory city of uh, the world at one point. And I had the uh, great pleasure when I was living down there. It was 82 to 84 to uh, get to know a little bit. Uh, Edgar May, who was at one point a member of the House of Representatives, is also a member of the Vermont State Senate, older brother of Madeline Cunin, and just a real Renaissance man. He really, uh, his, his interests really ran the, the gamut. It was a really nice celebration of his life. He passed away towards the end of uh, 2012 here after a pretty long illness, and he was 83 years old. The uh, Boy, the one takeaway that I got yesterday from this event, everybody talking about the, uh, the joie de vivre, uh, that, no translation I think needed on that one, the, uh, the spirit of life that Edgar May each and every day that, that he embraced, and he was somebody who really uh, had his share of tragedy in life. There was this remarkable story that was shared again yesterday that I'd heard years ago and never had the nerve to ask him about. When his first wife died in a tragic automobile accident, they'd been married two years. They'd uh, been courting for three years before that. And it was so fascinating yesterday. Really, one of the speakers that I thought was uh, had a huge impact on the day was Peggy Lockridge, who is the sister of uh, Edgar May's deceased first wife, and talking about how they had, and this was some 35, 40 years ago that, that she was killed in this really bad accident, and Edgar, too, was seriously injured in the accident. Some people didn't think he would recover. And how she really kept Edgar May as part of her life and that uh, they didn't fade away, as could have very easily have happened. And she told some really funny stories about how they, they met. Uh, if I get time this morning, I'll share that with you as well. Well, I'll do that right now. Here's what happened. 1961, Magic Mountain. Edgar May is on the ski lift, and he's kicking his skis up and down like a 12-year-old. He's uh, one person on a double chair lift, and he's yodeling at the, at the top of his lungs because he was originally from Switzerland, I guess. So, but enjoying life. And so um, these two women, the two sisters, noticed Edgar May and I'm sure made some comment about him. But then they found themselves later in the day, they were standing behind him in the line for the ski lift. And so the, uh, the sister decided, as she put it yesterday, to give fate a little nudge and pushed her sister into Edgar May so that they both topple over one another on the ground and... That, as they say, is uh, the beginning of the rest of the story. So a really quite moving uh, celebration yesterday, very well attended. And I wanted to uh, share with you the last speaker of the day was uh, Madeline Cunin, former Vermont governor, younger sister of Edgar May. And 
as Congressman Peter Welch pointed out, one of Edgar May's highlights of his life was, one, getting this rec center where the event was held yesterday built. It took him nine years to raise all the money for that. But one of the other big events in his life was walking his sister down the aisle in the House chamber when she was about to be inaugurated as the first female governor. So here are the comments yesterday of uh, former Vermont and Governor Malin Kim. And the celebration of his life is exactly what he wanted. No mourning, no regrets. He was many things, as you've heard. A visionary leader, a creative thinker, a doer, a mentor, a man who had a gift for friendship, and a man who was always a gentleman. He was impatient, generous, persistent, loving, funny, sometimes angry, even frustrated with the state of the world and the people in it, because he could also see the dark side. Too much poverty, too little justice. And more than anything, he wanted to set right what he saw to be wrong. I knew him in all those incarnations, but I knew him best as my brother. And one sure way to get a rise out of Edgar was for me to introduce him as my older brother. Four years to be exact. We were a small family, just the two of us and my widowed mother. The phrase single parent family had not yet been coined. He served both as my big brother and as my surrogate father. Our father died young, I'm sorry. I, I often sought and accepted his, I often sought and accepted his reading of how the world worked and his personal advice about how I should live my life. I'm sure many of you heard that too. And there were times when I rebelled, having to separate myself as children do. Either way, he had a huge influence on me, both directly and indirectly. Yes, there were gaps and differences. When I was busy having babies, he had started on his first career as a journalist. When we were both in the Vermont House and the speaker called the role alphabetically, he didn't like it that the letter K for Cunin came before M for May. <laughs> Voting with your sister again, eh? Some legislator would tease him. He thought he had fixed the problem when one day he asked the speaker to call the roll backwards. <laughs> Near pandemonium broke out because legislators didn't know whether to vote yes or no, not being able to gauge which way the wind was blowing, <laughs> as they usually did. When I was governor and he chaired the Senate Appropriations Committee, he thoroughly believed that the governor proposes and the legislature disposes. I admit, I once thought that when I chaired the House Appropriations Committee and Dick Snelling was governor. Where you stand depends on where you sit.
and a few hot items. My staff was busily negotiating back and forth between my office and his committee room. But finally, they figured out the root cause. It was the tricycle. When I was four years old, Edgar had taken my red tricycle apart and never figured out how to put it together again. <laughs> Edgar believed in family. He was there for us when we needed him. He was always at the table for the Jewish holidays, for birthdays, for graduations. His bear hugs left little room to breathe. Not having children of his own, my children became his children, my grandchildren, his grandchildren, taking pride in all of their achievements, including catching their first fish on Marcos Pond. Some have asked, how did you both get so much involved in public life? I don't have an answer. We had a courageous and adventurous mother who sailed to America in wartime with two children, ages six and 10. She wanted the best for her children and looked to this country as the land of opportunity where anything was possible. And we believed her. Sometimes it surprised me how much Edgar and I thought alike. We got mad at the same things. We saw people in almost the same light. We laughed at the same jokes, and we had similar dreams for the future, both for the country and for ourselves. He never thought of himself as a lifetime politician. He could easily relate to people with elegant titles and long resumes. And with equal delight, he could befriend a handyman, admire his skill, and enjoy the give and take. He loved to work with his hands and relished the results, whether it was plowing his own road or planting a garden. Edgar never respected class distinctions. He took great pleasure in small things. I don't want to make him sound like an alcoholic, but a fine glass of wine, which has been mentioned many times, my mother's recipe for apple cake, my well-cooked brisket, and a lingering luminous sunset. Late last, just last August, when he was thinking about the future of Macross, he explained that he could not leave. I watched a heron land on the water this morning. That's all I need. I could sit here and watch it all day. He has left us now and left a gap in our lives, small for some, large for others. But the aura of his presence will not disappear. Some days before he died, he whispered, I've had a great ride. I've been lucky. We've both been lucky. I'm at peace. And so he was, and so are we. He made our lives better, more meaningful, more challenging, more enjoyable, and certainly much more interesting. 
those rays of virtual glass. To Edgar, to Edgar, to Edgar. Comments yesterday of Madeline Kunin about her older brother, Edgar May. It was quite a moment when everybody raised their hand in a virtual toast to a, a really great man. Let me just share with you one comment that Edgar May gave in an interview to the Vermont Life, uh, the Folklife Center back in 2001. He was interviewed by Jane Beck. Because, you know, we live in a day and age where, I mean, you can't help but to some degree be cynical about politics and be cynical about politicians. I mean, look at, you know, example number one down in Washington, D.C. What a mess. What a, what a, what a disgrace. I think we're a little better off in Montpelier, but let me share with you what Edgar May had to say about public service. And boy, you know, it would be nice if people would heed this call. Here's what he had to say, quote, if we're going to continue to burnish our little society we call Vermont, we have to make sure that people understand, particularly younger people, that public service is ennobling and a noble idea, that democracy cannot work if large numbers of people opt out, if only one point of view prevails, because it is not they in Washington, it is not they in Montpelier, it is not they on the Board of Selectmen, it's us. Comments of Edgar May back in 2001 to the uh, folks at the Vermont Folk Life Center. A uh, moment of your time for our friends at uh, the tailor shop in Stowe's Lower Village. I want to encourage you to head up and see Mike Roussel. Make it soon. He's open on Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. And uh, he has more than 50 years of experience that he brings to each and every job. He is a real, true professional. So whether it is adjusting inward or outward men's and women's clothing, and if you need to get repair work done, too, Mike does a fabulous job at that. He has taken items of great value, and just when they're on the cusp of being thrown on the garbage heap, he has brought them back to life for many years to come. So before you throw out that prized item, that prized sport coat, that prized dress that may have gotten a rip or tear in it somehow, we encourage you to bring it up to uh, Mike Roussel at the tailor shop in Stowe's Lower Village. He is the next building past the Shell Station there as you head up on Route 100 here from the Waterbury area and head into uh, to Stowe's Lower Village. And again, he's open on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and they open the doors at uh, 10 a.m. So we encourage you to head on up there. Give him as much lead time as you possibly can if you have an event that's coming up that's important that you want to get that item done for. That's Mike Roussel. He's at the tailor shop. He's in Stowe's Lower Village. Also, I uh, want to take a moment to remind you about our good friends at Green Mountain Access. If you're looking for an outstanding local Internet service provider, make it our friends at gmavt.net. One phone call can make it all happen at 888-321-0815. That's 1-888-321-0815. You'll get a lot more information, too, if you head to their website at gmavt.net. Always uh, a great resource for you, particularly one you can do that before you make the call. might answer a couple of questions before you even get on the line. One of the real upsides, one of the real hallmarks, in my opinion, about Green Mountain Access, they have a terrific tech support team. You will run into issues if you own a computer and you have uh, you have email and you have other access to the web that you're trying to get. You're going to run into issues at some point in your life here. That's pretty much a guarantee. So what you really want is you want to have qualified people, people that are not going to treat you like you're some sort of a moron because you have a computer-related question. 
I have never hesitated. Well, I never hesitate to ask stupid questions anyway, but I've never hesitated to call the folks at Green Mountain Access, even with the most ridiculous of questions, and I've always been treated with the utmost respect. That's really what you're looking for out of an Internet service provider. So make it our friends at gmavt.net. You can reach them at one 321 and they're on the web at gmavt.net. All right, a couple of stories I want to get to uh, next hour here. There, as I mentioned, there's a uh, piece that Bill McKibben put together talking about the need for uh, all of us to focus more back on this issue of climate change and global warming. We had another record warm year here in uh, Vermont and a number of uh, uh, the storms that you know all about. And uh, Bill makes a couple of interesting points in this. I want to then talk a little bit uh, about this piece that I mentioned in the Burlington Free Press today. It's actually an Associated Press piece. We're uh, out of Boston talking about the uh, fish catch for the fishing year, which ends on the 30th of April. Fishermen in New England are given quotas about the number of particular species that they can catch. And even though they've been given these numbers, uh, these quotas, there's been some difficulty on the part of the fishing community to even reach those quotas. Bottom line, members in the fishing community say the fish just ain't there. So some real questions about why that might be happening, some speculation that ties back into what I was just telling you about with uh, Bill McKibben. So we can flesh that out a little bit as uh, we move through hour number two. We're going to talk to uh, Victoria Jones with Talk Radio News Service to kick off hour number two. We'll do that in just a couple of moments. A couple of quick programming notes for you coming up on the program on Wednesday. I'll be heading down to the Vermont State House, our first broadcast of the year from there. We'll uh, be joined on Wednesday by the Speaker of the House, Shaft Smith, will join us coming up at 9.05. Governor Shumlin joins us coming up at 9.30. Our game plan, too, on that, we'll be back at the State House again on Friday for our regular Friday program. Now, we're going to typically be joined by the governor on Fridays, a couple of scheduling <coughs> issues, which is why he'll be joining us this Wednesday. And then I think a week, a week from Friday, that one's a little bit up and down, but then we'll get back on the, we'll get back on the train after that. All right, that's uh, some of the things that are going on in the program this week. And uh, stay tuned for hour number two because we'll be back in just a moment. This is FM 96.1 WDEV Warren and AM 550 WDEV Waterbury Montpelier. News is coming your way next. <laughs> 